What's up, podcast listeners? This is Justin Rabinowitz here. I'm very, very, very excited for you to listen to this podcast that we have for you today. It is with Steve Drevoshevsky. We know him as Steve D for obvious reasons. Um, I've known Steve for about five or six years now. We met at a CrossFit gym, and little did I know the story that he had to tell. To, to In brief summary, he was a rock star, then he was in the depths of addiction, and now he works in the field of treating people with addiction. In addition to that, he goes shark diving. He's a ultra-endurance-type athlete. He's a competitive CrossFit athlete, and he just has unbelievable stories to tell. Um, he actually has his own podcast, The Extreme Life, um, which we'll keep putting in the show notes and will be coming out with an autobiographical book within the next year, I believe. Um, but again, just an unbelievable story. I've always been fascinated with talking about addiction and addiction behaviors. There's so much to learn and so much that we don't know. And this is probably the most unique perspective you're going to get. Someone that was experiencing true addiction and now treats people with addiction. So um, I can't recommend this podcast enough. It was it was such a joy to do. And he was he was unbelievable. And and also um, just just someone that is just super interesting to listen to. So I hope you guys enjoy. This is the Stay Healthy New Jersey podcast aimed at helping you live an active and healthy life in and around Somerset and Union County, New Jersey. This podcast is brought to you by Strive to Move, located in Warren and Berkeley Heights. Strive to Move helps active adults in New Jersey get back to doing what they love pain-free. Steve, how are we doing today? I think I'm okay. I think I'm going to make it. Well, thanks for uh, coming <laughs> today. And we're, I'm, I'm actually selfishly fascinated to let you tell your story. Um, so... Before I do any intro or anything like that, why don't you tell us your background, where you're from, and I can interject if I need to. Okay. All right. Um, well, um, you know, my, I'm a, I grew up uh, bi-coastal, so uh, my uh, my mother lived here in New Jersey. My father lived in California. Um, by the time I was uh, probably about 12 years old, I had been back and forth across the country about nine times, <laughs> which is, you know, kind of crazy for a kid. Um but, you know, I have a history and, in, in, uh, you know, I don't know how much you want me to go into right now. I mean, let's go into... I don't want to go into, like, I was first I was born. No. Well, <laughs> tell me about... I mean, you prior to what you do now, you had a career where you were in a, a rock rock oh, yeah. band. Yeah, yeah. Tell us about that and how that leads you into what you do now. Because, again, like... Yeah, that's kind of where it all went, went, went south. Well, because I... <laughs> I've told people that I know this guy that I think he was in a rock band and that he's had some things and now he's like unbelievable and he has his career, but I don't know any of the details, but okay. like, so why don't you tell us the yeah, details? There, there's some details there. Um, so, you know, when I was growing up, I was, I was kind of an awkward kid. I was smaller than everybody else at, at that point. Um, when I, you know, I started school at a younger age than, you know, my mother got me in school when I was like four. Mm -hmm. So I was a little year behind, like year younger than everybody I went to school with. I wasn't a real popular kid. Um, you know, I would, cause I, you know, like I said, I was that young kid that was kind of awkward, skinny, you know? Um, so I found music as an outlet and from a young, young age, it was interesting that, um, you know, I could go somewhere where there'd be a piano just sitting there and I'd hear something and I would sit there and I'd figure it out. And somebody heard that one and said, you got to get this kid into music lessons. Um, so that being said, we tried music lessons, didn't work. I never really 
got into the whole formal music training thing. Mary Had a Little Lamb didn't really appeal to me <laughs> yep. over and over and over again. Um, <clears throat> you know, so eventually I started, you know, I just spent a lot of time in my room by myself playing guitar. Actually, I wanted a drum set. Uh, I remember saying to my mother one Christmas, I want a drum set. And she said, um, uh, you know, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see. Let's see what Santa brings you and yeah. then, uh, whatever. And, and I ended up with a guitar. And, and part of that was because, and, and I'm grateful for that because, you know, it's, I know a lot of drummers and they're all a little bit off, <laughs> which is nothing bad about them. But um, I think selfishly, they didn't want to hear drums all day long. Makes and guitar's sense. a much easier thing to, to tolerate, I guess. Um, so anyway, I played for, you know, spent a lot of time just practicing, practicing, and I actually got pretty decent. And then I started learning with a guy named David DiPietro, who was one of the biggest uh, guitar players around here. He taught Zach Wilde uh, from Ozzy. Um, you know, and then uh, from him, I went to a guy named Carl Cochran, who played with Joe and Turner. So then I started really learning the, the chops, you know. Yeah. Um, and then I uh, got myself involved in, uh, I was doing a bunch of cover bands and different things. Some of them were good, some of them not so good. Um, landed a gig with a, with a guy named Dan Daly with a band called Power in, uh, I think it was 94. Um, How old were you at that in 94? Oh, God. I think I was 21. I don't know, somewhere in that area. That's, that's a long time. Yeah. <laughs> I'd have to do the math. I don't remember. I was in my 20s. I yep. know that. I was in my 20s, you know, and I was living the rock life, you know what I mean? Even though I wasn't a rock star, but we all thought we were, I yeah. think, at that point. You know, we were all like, yeah, we're going to make it, and, you know, in the music business. And um, so we were doing a lot of partying, a lot of, you know, going to bars and hanging out in clubs and, you know, all kinds of craziness was going on. But I, I landed that gig, um, and it was basically just to go on the road. And play on the road. So that's what we did. We went out, me and actually a friend of mine who, they needed a drummer too. Because the guy recorded an album, right, with a whole bunch of session players, but didn't have a touring band. Got it. And the album got signed to RTN Sony Records. Right. So he needed a band real quick to sure. go out on the road with and support the album. So um, I kind of just found him. I don't even remember where. Um, but we ended up going out on the road with him a, a bunch of times uh, over the next couple of years, did a bunch of festivals, did a lot of touring, um, did a lot of drugs <laughs> and did a lot of alcohol. And, yeah. um, you know, they tell me I had a good time. I don't remember it <laughs> all that much, but, uh, that was probably where thing, you know, that was where I could say, you know, is the start of my career. Yeah. Matter of fact, on a job application many, many years ago, uh, somebody, you know, where it says, uh, Past employment, I wrote pharmaceutical research. <laughs> um, but um, so you were touring around the U.S. You're international. Where were only you Europe. The, only the, Europe. The cool thing that was happening with that yeah. was, and this is this is pretty cool. Uh, we we kind of had the best of both worlds. So we'd go over to Europe and we'd be like rock stars, right? You go over there, you're signing autographs, you're playing these huge venues. You come back here, you're back in a local bar, right. playing to three people who right. really don't care about anything you're doing. Yeah. Um, so it was kind of cool because you can go over there and just live the rock star life, and then come back here and you're nobody again. It wasn't like you're always being hounded like some people have that issue where, you know, when you get so big, yeah, you're kind of like you don't have a private life anymore. And so. so most of us only see what the rock star life is in movies. Is it like what you're describing? What we see in movies? Is it like that? Like, is it just partying? Like, huh. it is a sex, drugs, and rock and roll all the time. I mean, is I that remembered? Yeah. Um, you know, but it, it, uh, it, it it's, I mean, it can be, yeah. you know, I mean, the th I think in the beginning, every band, when they first go on the road, goes a little nuts. Right. 
because it's your first time out on the road. A lot of people, it's your first time out of your house. Yeah. <laughs> kind of living out on a, you know, and then when, when they give you a giant tour bus. Yeah. They give you this huge bus and say, here, go crazy. Right. Go take it around Europe. Right. And, uh, you know, and we have this bus driver who's from Amsterdam. And, you know, life just went, you know, a little sideways, you know. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, we traveled around. I mean, there was there was a lot of, uh, I mean, you know, when I, when I look at, because I'm a recovering addict. I've been sober for a long time now. Um, and I'll tell you, my, my sober date, just to give you give you that, is uh, April 13th, 2002. Congratulations. Um, so, you know, it's been quite a, quite a while. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know the 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 interesting thing is they they give you this you know this bus you're going around that you're you're touring all over to the you know Europe and everybody's going crazy I mean you're going crazy but I think after a little while it kind of wears down a little bit yeah you know you're kind of like okay I've had enough now <laughs> you so, know so then tell me about you started touring in Europe you did that for a, quite a long time and what was the moment where you're like either this is out of control or like when did you know that something had to change. All right, so for me, it was, well, it came years later. It wasn't okay. even anywhere near that time period. I had some time to go yet um, in running around. So what happened with me was that, you know, we were touring around, um, we were doing our thing, and eventually, you know, that all kind of slowed down and stopped. Part of it was because, you know, my reputation had gotten to a point where I was, you know, by that point I was doing heroin. Um, and by that point it got pretty, pretty awful. Um, so I was pretty unhirable. Um, so, you know, it's, it goes to that, that whole thing where I always talk about the pain has to become great enough for you to realize you need to make a change. Um, so I kept going for several years, even though things, you know, cause let me see if I can figure out the best way to put this. When you are at a point where you hit this very low, um, sometimes it doesn't seem like there's any way to come back up. <laughs> right. So you just kind of keep going because sure. you don't know what else to do. So uh, I actually just did a podcast uh, the other day, um, and we talked about running out of the burning house. And that's what I knew how to do. I knew how to run out of the burning house, but I always ran back into the burning house, you know. So that's kind of what went on. So for years, it was kind of like try to get, you know, try to get sober, <laughs> can't get sober, go back to treatment, try to get sober. And that went on for, for quite a long time. I mean, I'm not a first-time winner. I probably got 20 treatments under my belt over those few years, Um you know, at this point, I've been sober longer than I've ever used, which is pretty yeah. awesome. Yeah. Um, but back then, I didn't know any other way. You know, it's, it's actually comfortable to stay in that bad spot because that's all you know. That's right. all I knew right. at that point. Um, so it had to get really bad. I mean, I, I had gotten all kinds of legal trouble. I had gotten in all kinds of, you know, I was, I was living pretty much on the street for a while. Um, eventually I got, uh, I got stopped. <laughs> I like to say, you know, people talk about hitting bottom. Um, bottom hit the hell out of me. Mm -hmm. it's, it's what I kind of say, you know, bottom kind of smacked me real good Yeah. Uh, where I ended up in a lot of trouble. I spent a couple of years in a place that I didn't want to be in. Yeah. And, uh, that's when I kind of, that's when I decided that this isn't what I want. Huh. You know, that's when I kind of got to a point where I said, you know what? I need to do something different. Right. Um, the pain had become great enough. It was, it, it, you know, it, it hurt more to keep going than it did to stop at that point. At that moment, this is, I don't even know the right way to ask the question, but at that moment where you're like, okay, this enough is enough. Did you have a vision of what life could be like in, if it, if it got better? Like, did you even think like, Hey, I, I had no idea. I had no idea, man. I mean, the, the thing that happened was, like I said, I was kind of stuck in a situation. Um, and you know, it was, 
at that moment where I kind of, I, I was placed in a position where someone had come in and, and said, look, I got this. Do you want some? And I had said, and, and I had about a year clean at that point. Um, not really, not because I really wanted to, just because it, there was no other way at that point. Um, and this person came in and said, hey, I got this bag of dope. You know, do you want it? Do you want to, I'll give it to you for free. And I just, I got this thought in my head, like, well, this ain't free at all. <laughs> Something's mm-hmm. coming next, whatever that is. And I think that was kind of like my moment of clarity where I, I woke up a little bit. Yeah. And I said, you know what, this, this needs to, I need to do something different. And that's when I actually started to go to meetings. I started to get help. I started to talk to other people about it. People, you know, social workers, people like that, people like what I do for a living now. Sure. Um, and then I basically uh, kept going after, after I got out of that horrible, awful place. Um, I ended up in a, in a halfway house for a while. And I started to get treatment. Mm-hmm. I started to get help. And kind of the interesting thing is, is I, I was not an easy person. <laughs> I was not an easy person to help. Um, I always was kind of a little oppositional here and there. And uh, one therapist who I kept challenging all the time said to me, you know, I got this great idea. There are these classes you could go to to learn about this stuff. Because uh, I, I remember saying to her, I said, you know what, what you do? Because we were talking about what do you want to do yeah. when you're done? Because you can't go back to doing what you were doing before. You certainly can't go back to being a criminal because you suck at it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I did. I was a terrible criminal. wasn't very good at being a criminal. Um, so, and I couldn't go back to music because, you know, I'd burned that bridge pretty hard. Right. Um, so, you know, she's, I said, you know, what you do doesn't look that hard. I think I can do that. Right. So she's like, oh, yeah? Okay. Here's some information on some classes. Why don't you go start taking some class? Go go learn some stuff. Yeah. So, and it was CADC classes, Certified Alcohol and Drug Counselor classes, okay. to get certified. Yeah. You know, which I didn't even know how long that road was going to be at that point. I just kind of was like, huh, you know what? Maybe I'll go check it out. Yeah. Um, so I started going to the classes and... Um, I, for the life of me, don't think she ever even thought I was going to go. Yeah. Or she certainly didn't think I would end up in the position I am today. Yeah. And it's kind of funny because every once in a while I, we, we connect because yeah. <laughs> we're in the same field. Sure. And she's still around um, doing what she does. Um, but it's kind of funny. I've, I've come a long way since, since that kid right. who didn't know what the hell he was doing. Right. Didn't know what he wanted to do. Yeah. Um, you know, which is part of what I, I like to share with people because you can come out, you know, I say all the time, there's hope after dope. You can go all the way. If you think you're at the bottom of where you uh, could be, yeah. you know, and, and you don't think there's any way out, well, yeah. I'd like to call bullshit on that. Sorry yeah. for the language. No, if that's, okay. a, that's, you know, I'd like to, good. but yeah, <laughs> um, because you know what? You can get better. It just takes work. Right. It takes work and it takes a little bit of effort and takes some motivation and you know, right. it takes a lot of things like that. So, I mean, you're in the field now on the other end of it. What yeah. What do you think, if you had to analyze <laughs> yourself, what do you think that you had that allowed you to come through that, whereas the people maybe that you work with sometimes don't? What are the qualities or what skills or they had, haven't got bad enough for them or, or well, what? I think I got to a point where I surrendered. I just said, you know what? I don't know the answer, got you know? It. Um, and I say that to this day. I say that because I train a lot of therapists now yeah. uh, to work with people uh, with addictive illness and other things. Just change altogether. I specialize yeah. in change. That's what I specialize yeah. in. 
Um, I say I specialize in resolving ambivalence, right? Because everybody wants two things at the same time when they come to see me. They want it. They want to change their life. They want things to be different, but they want to keep things the same too. Tell me, tell me about <laughs> that. What do you mean by that? Well, it's kind of like if you go to a, this is this is the thinking of a, of an addicted person when they come in, and and I'll break it down into like if you go to a picnic, right? You go to a picnic and you say to yourself, "Hey, I'm going to eat healthy today. I'm going to go there and I'm going to, you know." And you see the salad bar and you say hey i'm gonna have the salad that's what i'm gonna have and, yeah. you, and you make up your mind that that's what you're gonna do then you see the chocolate cake mm-hmm. and the chocolate cake's over here so now you're kind of in that position where you're like i want to eat healthy but i also really want that cake mm-hmm. and that's kind of what have that's resolving that is really important um you know most people come in they want their life to to change but they want it to be different as well and it's that creating that cognitive dissonance that uh, is, is part of what I do. It's a big part of what I do is, is making people uncomfortable with their old way of thinking so that they start to move towards a new way of thinking, mm-hmm. right? And that's what kind of had to happen with me. You asked, you know, what, what was different, what, what changed, and it's that I became willing to accept that I don't have the answers. Um, my motivation went from a pushing motivation to a pulling motivation, right? Things push you in the treatment aren't going to be there forever, Right, your legal problems. When it, when an addict comes in, sometimes they have legal problems. Sometimes they have, uh, you know, family problems. They have job jeopardy. They all kind of, a whole bunch. Sometimes multiples of all those things. Um, at some point, they're going to resolve. At some point, if you do the right thing, for a period of time, those things are going to go away. What's going to keep you sober when that goes away? Right. Because that's the pushing mode. We call that external motivation in treatment. Right. You want to create that internal motivation. So what pe- I say this all the time, what people come into treatment with doesn't matter. It's what they leave with that matters. Um, so if you can get somebody to get to a point where they're like, hey, I want to get to this place rather than I want to run away from this, yeah. running out of the burning house, right, that we talked about. And I'm stealing that from a friend of mine named Charlie Mills. But running out of a burning house um, to, to go, you know, to, you know, that's only going to get you so far. It's going to get you out of the house. Yeah. And generally, you know, a lot of times you're going to walk back in because sure. <laughs> you're going to think you forgot something in there, I guess. I don't know. Whatever yeah. it is, you're going to go back in. Um, what's going to pull you towards something else? That's the key. Right. That's the key to being sober. Right. The key to being sober is what are you working for? You know, I think that's the key to life, actually, a lot of times, is where are you going? People function better when they have a direction, right. <laughs> you know? If you're just wandering around out there, you know, you got to figure out a direction for yourself because it's going to end up nowhere good. Right. You know, right. so surrendering, getting to that point, and and the simplest way you could put it is is kind of like for me, it was like things were fun in the beginning, then it was fun with problems, mm-hmm. then it was just problems. Gotcha. <laughs> and then it gets bad enough to where you get beaten down enough to where you kind of say to yourself, okay, uh, this isn't working, yeah. and you eventually. And some people, you know, some people have a very, you know. It depends on what your pain threshold is, right? Mm-hmm. I had I had a very very uh, low bottom, so my pain threshold was probably pretty pretty uh, exceptional. Sure. You know, I could handle a lot of a lot of garbage before I I wanted to make a change. Yeah. Um, some people have, you know, some people they lose a job or they have some problems at home or, uh, you know, and that's all it takes for yeah. them to make a change. That's that's it, and that's great. Yeah. That's what you you don't want a high pain threshold. You right. want a low pain threshold when it comes to this. Um, 
they don't have to go to jail. They don't have to live under a bridge. They don't have to end up in a psych ward. They don't have to end up in all these other places that people sometimes people have to end up in right. in order to realize they need to make a change. And sometimes people end up in all those places and still don't make the change. And what do you think that is? Why do I think that is or what, what causes that? I think sometimes, I mean, it says, you know, if you read the big book, it says some people are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. Um that may be part of it. Yeah. Um, and like I said, some of it's just, you know, you get to that point where you get this fatalistic denial that, that we call uh, that, that's out there. And fatalistic denial is, you know, I don't think I can change. I don't think, you know, this is just me. This is who I am. I'm a drug addict. I'm not worth anything. Um, you got to remember there's also other things going on. So, you know, and we're much better at seeing it now than we ever have been. But, uh, you know, most drug, you, you don't, we used to call it the garden variety drunk or the garden variety, you know, and, and I, someone's going to beat me up over the stigma <laughs> for even saying that. But no, it's, you know, sometimes you just got to call it as you see it, right? Uh, there's no garden variety alcoholic. There's no garden variety drug addict. Right. Generally, there's always something else underneath, right? You don't see the person, uh, you know, there's, there's a book written by a guy named Gabor Matei. He wrote a book called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. And it really explains a whole lot about the trauma piece of it, the neurobiological aspects of it. So there's a whole lot of things going on there. It's a biopsychosocial disease um, that, you know, is is based on, you know, we have fears, we have traumas, we have all these things. And and one thing that, that kind of comes up a lot is, you know, we talk about trauma-based treatment, trauma, you know, trauma-informed uh, treatment. Um, and it's so important because if an addict didn't start because of trauma, they get trauma during the addiction. Right. Being an addict itself is traumatic. Sure. Right? So you have different types of trauma. Um, I mean, some of it could be linked back to childhood stuff. Some of it could be, you know, just like, you know, for me, it was like I was having fun for a while. Yeah. And then it just turned into something else. And then it got traumatic. Gotcha. <laughs> that happens, too. And then you get, tra- you know, all kinds of stuff happens during that period that traumatizes the heck out of you. Um, so you have to try to figure out how to resolve some of that. Um, may not always be the first thing you do, but you know, first thing you do is get the person stable, safe, and in a good space. Sure. Then you start to work out some of the other stuff. I think you answered the question in that last statement, but you know, someone that again is in a completely different field and I'm ignorant to this, there is a psychological aspect to it. But what about the physical aspect? And how do you, mm. you know, physical addiction versus, you know, like you're saying, maybe they had trauma as a child. Um, mm-hmm. Or they're just physically addicted to the thing. Is that something that you guys factor in? Well, you know, you, we talk about four main things in, mm-hmm. in addiction. Uh, and there's four main categories that things fall in. It's biopsychosocial, spiritual, right? These are the things that, that tend to get affected the most, right? So your biological aspects, you know, what, what causes you to keep using, you know, what's, what's all that stuff that goes on? Um, the sociological stuff, you know, that keep you, you, you know, like I said, sometimes you create all kinds of damage in your personal life, all kinds of damage in other areas of your life, which then makes you say, hey, you know what? F it. I'm going to keep going. Yeah. Um, you know, the spirituality piece of it, uh, you know, and, and, I, and in no way do I say spirituality in a religious context. Yeah. I'm saying spirituality in a basically to me, spirituality is an inner based piece. Mm-hmm. Um. It's when people, you know, you, you kind of have that, I'm okay with where I'm at, you know? And that's 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 kind of where I base my life, is spiritual. You know, yeah. religion is an organized form of worship. It's all fine and good. It's good. It's good for some people. But 
when you look at spirituality, you can have both of those things or you could just be spiritual. Sure. Right. Um, so, you know, addiction affects you in a lot of different ways. The physical aspect of it, the actual like getting addicted and dependent, um, that's a lot of the, that's the burning building that you keep <laughs> running back to. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you, an addict doesn't have a choice when they're in their active addiction. You know, a lot of people say, why don't they just stop? Or, right. you know, or I hear a lot of, you know, if you go on social media, man, it's, it's terrible sometimes when sure. someone, when, you know, when you get things like, I, I read a story a while back on social media and I, and I, and I hate looking at stuff like this, but somebody who was a heroin addict nodded out, ended up crashing into somebody else and killed the other person and had to be narcan to bring that person back. And people on social media are like, why'd they even Narcan the person? They should have let them die. Right. And I'm like, well, no, <laughs> that's not, you know, granted that person needs to be punished for that stuff. That, that being an addict doesn't excuse you for your stuff. It sure. doesn't. You still have to pay your price, but you don't let somebody die. Sure. Uh, you you still have to bring somebody back. Right. Um, you know, and and have them face their consequences, whatever those things are. But social media could be pretty brutal. Sure. Um, but when someone is actually in their active addiction, their choice is taken away. They don't. They're they're if they don't use, they're going to get violently ill. Right. right, violently sick, and it's like the worst flu you've ever felt. If it's opiates, sure, uh, cocaine's a little different. Works a little bit differently. It's not doesn't have a physical aspect like that. Yep. Um, benzodiazepines has a physical aspect. Xanax, Valium, Ativan, all those. Um, alcohol, sure, really bad physical aspect. Right. Sure. So I, I often say this: if you really want to understand the dangers here with with uh, detox and and why it's so important to get treatment and help when you're trying to come off these types of drugs is if I take 100 people on, uh, that are addicted to alcohol and I stick them in a room and let them detox for five days and don't give them any medication, no supervision, nothing, just let them, here you go. Yeah. No more booze, you're done. And I give, and I, I take 100 people detoxing off benzos, Xanax, Valium, Ativan, mostly Xanax now, you see a lot of that. Yeah. Um, and I stick them in a room and let them detox for five days and don't give them any medication. And then I take a person... Uh, I take 100 people detoxing off uh, opioids. Yes. And I stick them in a room and I let them detox for five days. Now, I go back to that room of alcoholics. There's a, there's a percentage of them are going to be dead, right? Because detox from alcohol can be life-threatening. Uh, we see seizures happen, heart attacks, stroke. All kinds of things can happen uh, from, from alcohol withdrawal. You go back to the benzo room. Pretty much similar. Same thing. You're going to see people who've had seizures and are not there anymore. You're going to see, you know... Now I'm taking a hundred people. I, I don't. Yeah. I can't tell you definitely what percentages of any of those. I go back to that room of opiate addicts. Not one of them is going to be dead, but they're going to be miserable. Huh. Okay. More miserable than you've ever seen anybody, and unless they killed each other, which is also possible yeah. in that room. Right. Um, however, even though heroin opioids are not life threatening and withdrawal, they're life threatening when you go back out and use. And the chances of someone getting through detox on their own is very slim. People generally make it a day and a half, two days when they're trying to detox themselves and then they run back out. Yep. They run back out, they run a high risk of, of uh, you know, overdose or something to that effect. And right. then, then obviously they can expire that way. Well, I mean, all of that from my personally, it's really interesting stuff. No idea about any of that. So I appreciate you yeah, telling us no, about that's that. That's what I'm here for. That's what I do. <laughs> I'm interested personally on, you know, you, you were at one point the patient and mm -hmm. now you treat the patient and you even treat the people that you work with people that treat the patient. Mm -hmm. How do you personally, how do you, you know, when you see people that are struggling with it, is it something where you feel like I'm making a difference? Are there times where you're like, 
man, I can't believe I got into this. There are times where it brings you back. You, you feel <laughs> yes. terrible. All of it, <laughs> the right? The answer is yes. Because I think one of the things that we don't, one of the things that we don't talk about um, a lot is the practitioner, mm. right? And like, yeah. how do you mentally, with your experience, deal with some stuff that, you know, each well, time you go in, you almost not, you're not personally experiencing the trauma, but it has to bring back things. Oh, yeah. I mean, there, there's a whole lot of stuff out there on, uh, you know, taking care of yourself, self-care. And I preach that constantly to my staff, to people that work with me, Yeah. Um, because it's extremely important. Um, I always joke with people because I, I, I do, I have a lot of social work interns that I, that I train. Mm-hmm. And the funny thing about social work school, if you ever, ever heard, know, known anybody who's gone to, for a master's in social work, they are, and that's what I have. I'm master's in social work. I graduated USC. Yeah. Um, before they had all that other stuff going on. <laughs> Your mom didn't get you My mom school? didn't get me in. I didn't have all that, you know, payola stuff happening with them. I, mean, I didn't come from that kind of wealth or background. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I had to do it on my own merit. Yeah. <laughs> I get in trouble for saying that. That's okay. Whatever. Who cares? <laughs> anyway, um, I'm just calling it as I see it. That's ain't right. nothing that ain't out there. But, uh, you know, I train social workers, and if you know anybody who's gone through master's social work school, it's it's like boot camp for your brain. They they drive you into the concrete, basically, yeah. uh, and and for good reason because you're going to be treating people. I mean, at some point you're going to be licensed. I'm a licensed clinical social worker. I can diagnose people. I could treat people. I could do a whole lot of things. They want people to be competent, right? Mm-hmm. It's really important. So they they pretty much make sure you get run through the ringer. But the whole time they're doing that. <clears throat> so now. Think about this. When that those programs were designed, they were designed when uh, years ago when people, you know, basically got out of college. They're still living at home probably. They don't have a real, you know, regular job yet. And they go to social work school. So they got all this time to, you know, 40 some odd hours a week or so to, to spend on that class, right? Um, nowadays, it's very different. Now people, a lot of times the average social work Masters in social work students, probably around 27, 28 years old, mm-hmm. been out of school for a while, decided to go back, has a full-time job, lives out of the house, has to pay bills. So you have a lot more. So now you got this 20-hour-a-week internship to do, plus your regular job, plus you got to go to classes, plus you got to get papers done, plus you got to – so they give you all this stuff to do, and they're talking self-care the whole time. Right. <laughs> time. Make sure you take care of yourself. And you're saying, when? Yes. <laughs> when am I going to do this? It's good training for young counselors. My counselors hate when I say that. Yeah. But um, it's good training for young counselors. But, you know, I'm also a very big balance guy. I, you know, I, I say this all the time. You have to have other things in your life. You have to. can't spend all your time in somebody else's head, um, especially in addictions. Because, you know, addiction clients, they're not always ready to make a change. They're not always where they, you know, where we would like them to be. And they're, sometimes they can be quite difficult. Right. And... Uh, you know, that being said, you have to walk away from it. When you, you have to have a time and a place where you can unplug. Yeah. Um, you know, that's what I, that we, we were talking a little bit about the diving and the sharks and stuff like that. That stuff I do because I, I need to, I, you know what, when I'm underwater, I don't have a phone. Right. <laughs> I have no connection. When I book my charters and I go out on these boats and do my shark dives. Yeah. I don't have any access to anything. There's right. no noise. I call it noise. The noise that comes in, like I have my phone with me right now. Think about when the last time your phone was more than four feet away from you. Yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm telling you, it's always right there, right? Your phone actually is collecting data on you right now. Just That's right. You know that. <laughs> That's what they do. Um, I wanted to, well, you and I met actually at a CrossFit gym. Yeah. So where in your journey as your recovery happened or 
Did you, because I know you now are a huge fitness guy, CrossFit, Jiu-Jitsu. Yeah, I do a ton of stuff. Where did you find, how did that come, (laughs) was that something you always did or was it, you know, where? Um, how did that fit in and where did it fit in? No, the funny thing was, is it was like, before I started really getting into all that, I, I really didn't have a whole lot of, you know, I did some stuff when I was younger, you know, I did some running around, I did some weightlifting, I did this and that, but really didn't have a direction to it. Um, so that journey was kind of interesting because it started, God, when was it? 2010, 11, somewhere in that area. Mm-hmm. Um, where I basically, you know, I, I was smoking. I was working in this field. I was still a smoker. Um, you know, I always tell people, if you ever want to find an AA meeting or an NA meeting, just look for the smoke signals outside yeah. the... Outside of a church. When you I was seeing in... a bunch of people smoking outside a church at around 7 o'clock, probably an AA meeting. I remember we had to, when I was in college, we had to go like go to an AA meeting as part of one of our classes. And I, I remember it was like, you go to the church, everyone's got, it was around Christmas time because they had the red <laughs> Starbucks cups, yep. the cigarette, and they were outside of the church. That yep. was like the... That was the thing. That's the thing. So, you know, I was still smoking. I wasn't really in great shape. I was probably heavier than I am now. Yeah. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm at 205 right yeah, now, so yeah. it's probably and about 215. I'll, I'll say it cause you probably won't, but you're in, you're pretty ripped. Well, I'm, I'm okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> I'm nowhere where I need to be. I've still try. It's still a work in progress. That's right. It always it's always a work, a work in, progress. in progress. That's right. You know, for me, it's not always about, you know, the, the thing about the body composition piece, that's just a side effect of being in shape, being fit, Doing right? the right thing. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's just what it comes down to. So you know, I don't set out to get ripped. I set out to just be physically fit, sure. you know, and be competitive. I mean, I'm a competitive athlete, so that, sure. that's that's one of the things that I try to do. And that's just kind of like a side effect of that, you know, right. if you want to call it anything. But that journey kind of started with, um, you know, I just kind of said, you know what, I had enough. I need to do something. So I had gotten that uh, Insanity mm-hmm. workout, that yeah. Sean T video. You ever, yeah. you ever see those? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, um so I got those, and it's like a 90-day program, right? So I, I'm still smoking, by the way, during right. this. So I do this Sean T workout, and I remember doing the warm-up. And I'm like, God, I'm in yeah. terrible shape. I'm in yeah. terrible condition. Because I'm like getting through the warm-up. I'm like, I'm already done. It's like 10 minutes in. Yeah. And the warm-up just happened. And it's just a bunch of like running in place and all kinds of stuff that he had going on. Um So I'm like, man, that's awful. I got to do something. So I So I kept with it. I did it for like 90 days. And I said, I'm going to sign up for a 5K. Uh-huh. And that's what I did. I signed up for a 5K. And I remember it was the Lincoln Tunnel Challenge was my first 5K that I ever did. Mm-hmm. So it was running. I could, and I signed up just because I thought it would be neat. Yeah. Because I'm like, all right, I get to run to New York and run back. So I'll tell people I ran to New York. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so, and really, that's what you do. You run through the Lincoln Tunnel and run back. Right. Um, and, and it was in 2010, I think. And I, and I said, you know, and I, and I ran that race. And I remember having, I had a fanny pack on. With my cigarettes in it. <laughs> That's a good look. Yeah. Oh, it's terrible. I, you know, terrible, terrible. Uh, it was not the best. Uh, anyway. Um, so I ran the race, and I remember it took me like 45 minutes to run a 5K, and I was like, that was terrible. And this was after doing 90 days of the Sean T workout. Yeah. Trying to eat a little better. I wasn't really, I didn't really know what eating right was. Yep. At that point, as most people don't. Sure. You know, you see stuff in the supermarket, you're like, it says healthy on it. Yeah, I'm going to get that. You think it's healthy, and then you look at it. If you really look at what it is, you're like, I don't, I can't even pronounce half of this stuff. Yes. So I wasn't even eating right. Um, I thought I was, but I wasn't. You know, I thought spaghetti was a good, you know. That's hey, right. You know, yeah, it's yeah, good yeah. for you. It's, it's not cookies. Yes. You know? <laughs> Just as bad, really. But, yeah, for sure. Um, but um, sorry for anybody who loves spaghetti. 
<laughs> anyway, um, so getting into that, I, I, I just, uh, you know, after that race, I kind of decided to quit smoking. So I just said, you know, I took my, I remember taking my, because I got to the end of that race and I pulled, I opened up my fanny pack because I was dying for a cigarette. <laughs> I opened up my fanny pack and I, which I can't even believe I wore a fanny pack at one point, but. I think they're back in style now. They are actually, yeah. you know, you ever listen to Joe Rogan? Yeah. He, he oh, wears a fanny right. pack then, and he's proud of it. Then it must be cool. He's proud of it. Yeah. He's proud of it. So. Um, so I guess I wasn't in bad, bad company with that, but the cigarette thing. So I pull out, I'm at the finish line now, Yeah, you know, and and I don't even know how many people were there. Most people had finished and like went home and probably were having coffee by that point. Um, so I remember pulling out the cigarettes and I lit my cigarette and I'm standing around having a cigarette and you know, I remember looking around and people are looking at me like, you're an idiot. (laughs) I could just see it in their face. They weren't saying it, but I could see that look in their face. Like what the hell's wrong with you? Um, so that's when I decided to quit smoking. So I stopped smoking right then and there. Um, I got on uh, the patch, and I think I was chewing the gum. I think I had like four different nicotine replacement things going on. And that went on for probably about three or four months. Sometime in 2011, my sister called me up and said, you know, this guy Dave told me about this thing called Spartan Race. Mm-hmm. And uh, I want to go do it. Do you want to go? And I said, yeah. Let me look at it. So I looked at it online. It was like this crazy race of mm-hmm. like very military style, yeah. barbed wire, yeah. all and, kinds of chaos. And at the time, now everyone knows <laughs> what a Spartan race is for the most part. Back then, it was nobody, nobody really knew. I mean, there wasn't even that many. You know, now we have, just to put it in perspective, I think that year for that race, that uh, the first race I did was Blue Mountain, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And I think to put it in perspective, the they, they didn't have, they had like a thousand people show up. Mm hmm. For the whole weekend. Yeah. Now it's like ten thousand people show up. Right. For a weekend. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. Um. So I remember. Uh. All right. So I'm gonna get in there. I'm gonna kick butt. I'm gonna go out. And there was this guy named Hobie Call who was like the big guy at that point. And I decided, okay, I'm gonna go catch this guy on this mountain, right? And I'm like, not even. I'm delusional. <laughs> you know, totally delusional at that point. Um. So I do the Shanti cycle again, right? Yeah. Like I'm getting ready because I got 90 days or so before the race. So I'm going to do the Shanti cycle. I'm not smoking now. And now I'm actually getting physically better. Right. I'm actually starting to get better. I got on that mountain. I ran that. I, I remember running that first hill, mm-hmm. which was up a ski slope, basically. Yeah, no all, joke. The, all of them are on ski slopes. So I run up the ski slope. One of the girls we were with actually made it up the first slope and just quit. <laughs> she disappeared. I said, where'd she go? She oh, quit. Yeah. Um, so all the way up the hill, I'm like trenching up this hill. Um, and it just seemed to go up and up and up. And I'm like, all right, well, this thing turns around and I go down. I'm going to really open up the tank and I'm going to go. Yep. <laughs> I got four steps into the downhill and twisted my ankle. Oh. <laughs> so I ended up limping down the entire, uh, the entire race. Uh, and, but the craziness about this, and this is why I think I, I know I'm a little off, um, <laughs> is because at the end of that race, I said, I want to do another one. Right. Even though how painful that was, I'm like, I need to do this again. Right. I don't know if it was that year or the year after that I started really getting into it. Uh-huh. But it slowly progressed until I was doing like, I mean, I think in 2015, I did 23 or 24 Ooh. races Wow. Uh, that year. Um, yeah. And I was running elite and I had yeah. sponsors and it yeah, just yeah. was a total, you know, now I was really into the fitness world. Sure. Um, somewhere in there, I think it was maybe 13, yeah, it might have been 12, 2012 probably, uh, end of 2012. I decided I needed to get stronger for, for obstacle course racing. And I, and I was hearing a lot about this CrossFit stuff. So yeah. then I found a gym mm-hmm. that I started going to and learning. And I realized how bad I really did 
need yeah. to get in better shape. <laughs> because my first workout, I remember laying on the ground going, what the hell did I just get yeah, into? what just happened? Yeah, yeah. what just happened? I think the first workout I did was Fran. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what I'm is, like... Yeah, tell the audience what Fran is. Fran, Fran is 21-15-9 of thrusters at 95 pounds and uh, and pull-ups. So a thruster is like a front squat to a press overhead with 95. You do 21 of thrusters, you do 21 of pull-ups, 15 and 15 and 9 and 9. Yep. It probably doesn't sound bad until you actually do it. And then you end up... It doesn't sound bad on paper at all. It doesn't sound you're bad You're like, okay, I could do this. Yeah. But then when you get into that round of 15, you feel like you're going to die. Yeah, legit. Like, cause almost anybody could get through the round of 21, <clears throat> well, you know. Well, I'm just saying... It, yeah, even if you scale it, but... But yes, it's it's not easy. Let's it's just not, say it's not. It's yeah. The twenty one is kind of like you know. It's a false sense of security because yes. that's not really where the workout is. That's right. The workout really takes place in fifteen. Right. Right. Yeah, and that's <laughs> you know, a that's a very classic CrossFit workout. It's a sprint. It's yes. a sprint workout. It's meant to be sprint. It's made to me make your lungs hurt yes. when you're done. And my God, they did. I think it took me like nine minutes to finish that workout, right. which right. is like now, now I do it in like three. Right. Yeah. Triple <laughs> so, the time. So yeah. you know, and and you know, I'm guessing now because I haven't done it in a while but i think i'd hit probably around three right now but the 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 point is that you know it's just an you know it's one of those workouts where you know it really kind of laid me out sure wow i really am not in good sprint condition yeah right for that kind of stuff right because when you're working out you have you especially crossfit you find three different modalities that go on you have the and, and this is just basically the 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 um time frames right you have the short workouts you have the moderate workouts and you have the long workouts, right? Mm-hmm. The short workouts are like the, you know, up to te- uh, up to you know six minutes or so, yep. getting into that area. Anything above that, to ten to twelve to fifteen, is kind of like the moderate workouts. And then you get into the longer stuff, which yeah. can be a half hour, you know, different things like that. Or you can get into stuff like Murph, which is the, sure. you know, which is about an hour, yes, uh, forty minutes, depending on where you're where you're at physically. Right. Um, you know, I think I did my last one at forty two minutes. I think yep. I, I finished Murph last year at forty two. I think I'd have to look back, but but you know, it's a big difference from where I was yeah. to where I am now. Sure. Um, and I, fi- the problem I keep running into is I keep. Every new thing I try, I fall in love with. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and I'll get really, like, my wife will tell you, I have no, <laughs> there's no mid-range. You're either in or you're out. I'm either, either hell yes all or the way hell off no. the cliff. Yeah. Or I just back away from it and say, I don't even want nothing to do with that. Yeah. It's one or the other. There's, you know, uh, in some aspects, that's good. Sure. In some aspects, it's not. Yeah. I think that also plays into my addictive uh, I, you know, there's. Uh, well, can I can I interrupt yeah, you there? Sure, you could certainly interrupt me, Justin, um, anytime. A lot of people would say, like on the outside, oh, they just traded one addiction for another. Mm. Is that a thing? It depends. It depends how you look at it. Um, if now, how do we define addiction? Now, this is where you get into the, the nuts and bolts of that. Yeah. Um, how I look at it is when you have a behavior that starts to affect or impact other areas of your life mm-hmm. in a negative way. Yep. And you continue that behavior. You might want to take a look at that as an addiction. So, if you're somebody who's a, uh, who works out, I mean, you can work out twice a day. Like there's guys out there to work out, you know, and I do. Uh, sure. Sometimes, you know, it depends on what my current workout uh, protocol is, but you know, you could do that as long as it's not if I start taking off work to go work out, right. that's a problem. Right. <laughs> if right. I start, you know, having problems at home because I'm always at the gym, that's a problem. Gotcha. Right. If I'm not having, or if I'm starting to have physical problems yes, and I refuse to address them, but I just keep going, 
which could sometimes be I, I border on that one sometimes. Well, you that, know, that's <laughs> what well, we we don't see it much anymore. I'll be honest, because at this point, as you know, most of the the better CrossFit gyms are are actually are still around and like because mm-hmm. back you know six seven years ago there everyone had a CrossFit gym. And, oh yeah, everybody and, and everybody. All you need to do is go get a thousand dollar shirt and you gotta, yeah and you, you had open it. a CrossFit gym. One of the things we ran into in here and in, in strive to move was that you know we would get some we had I remember distinctly we had one patient who came in and every time she squatted basically below parallel she would get shooting pain down the back of her leg like uh-huh. it was she had neurological compromise yeah yeah and yeah. we're like listen okay like let's just not squat to below parallel because this might be a problem and yeah. she's like no 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 like my crossfit coach says like you have to get below parallel and that was a conversation well, in competition you do but if you're not competing right but but you got to take care of yourself right and yeah. so that was we don't run into it much anymore because again like now now because crossfit there are so many good coaches out there that know about modifications and training mm-hmm. volume and all that so we don't see that much anymore that but didn't exist early on yeah, yeah to your point of like of when does it become a negative like fitness should be a positive but in that case mm-hmm. you know one distinct case that could become a negative oh yeah and and there was a time when you know and a lot of those gyms went away exactly um which is good yeah because not everybody's meant to be a coach sure not everybody's meant to you know if you're giving people advice on things and you're guessing yes <laughs> You shouldn't be guessing. You're dealing with somebody's physical well-being. When you're telling someone, I can't tell you how many gyms I've been to where they have people with bad form and they're loading up their bar. Yes. And I'm like, what are you doing? You're right. going to hurt this person. And and it's not my place to say that because I'm a guest in their gym. Right. But I, I see things sometimes and I'm like, I really want to say something, but it's it's hard. You know, yeah. Not where I go now. Where I go now, I mean, you know, the place I go now – um, they're, they're great. I mm-hmm. mean, they, they really kind of take care of their, their people. They make sure they're well, they, yeah. they don't let people work out if they're not feeling well or they're, they're, you know, if they have something going on, they, they're really aware of it. Yeah. Um, but I'll tell you, there's been a few that I've seen and I'm like, you know, this person should not be clean and jerking sure. 200 pounds. They can't clean and jerk 135 without looking horrible. Yeah. You know, their back is bent Their you know, knees are coming in there. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just a terrible form and it's like that's injury waiting to happen maybe not right away but eventually that's going to be an injury and you can see it happening but you know i mean and and i think you know even myself i've struggled with form uh you know i always tell people gymnastic stuff's always been my easy thing to do i could do muscle-ups all day long i could do all kinds of different things put me behind a barbell yeah you know i used to work with a specific coach just for getting my form right because and he wouldn't let me put a lot of weight on the bar Right. Um, just be, until the form was right. Mm-hmm. Unless you can get it perfect, you should not be loading that bar up. Right. right. You know, if you can get it perfect without weight on it. And one thing people don't realize, too, is weight hides form. Right? So if you're somebody who can't get into a full squat with a PVC pipe and have your arms fully, your elbows up, fully extended outward, and your chest up, and that PVC pipe laying on your chest with a, you know, and you can't get into that form, but you can do it with a, 180 pounds yeah well that's the weight pushing you into that position which Mm. is going to be an injury sure at some point yep yep if you can't do it with nothing you shouldn't be doing it no i hear that um let's let's fast forward to extreme life okay what is that (laughs) extreme life extreme life is is an idea it's a it's a concept that i came up with uh probably over a year ago um actually i it it wasn't called extreme life over a year ago it was kind of like went through a few different um, variations until mm-hmm. I finally landed where I wanted to go. Um, but the concept behind stream, extreme life is that 
you know, it's not about always being extreme either. And then I want to make sure that's understood. It's about living the best life you can, mm-hmm. uh, figuring out what that is, um, being successful, being, you could be successful in your career. You can be successful in your life. I've, I've shown that I, I've, I've made a successful career in what I do. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I work, uh, at a pretty high level in a, in a, in a major health organization here in, in, in New Jersey. Um, I've made I've made a career, but I've also had a life. Yeah, you don't have to sacrifice one for the other. You don't have to be miserable. You don't have to uh, let your job define you. Um, your job is part of who you are, but that's it. It's a part. Sure. Um, and one of the questions I often ask people is, "Who are you if you take your career away? What is you, who are you without that?" If you can't answer that question, then your job is your entire existence, and that's a problem. Right. Um, you don't have to be. You could be great at what you do. Matter of fact, you know, when you look at the European model of employment, things yeah. like that, they, they have a lot more time off. They have a lot more breaks. They do a lot of different things. And they're actually a lot of times more productive right. um, because it's shown that it's not the time you spend at work. It's the quality that you spend at work, right? So Extreme Life is a lot about that coaching. It's about trying to figure out each person's, uh, the way their life is. Um, and, and what's going to make them achieve their goals, but still maintain sanity, um, and, and have a, have a, uh, you know, and have a good life at the same time. You don't need to sacrifice one for the other. Mm -hmm. And it's important to understand that. Um, it's about defining goals as set by you. Like if you were to come into me, I would ask, you know, well, what do you want to achieve? What are you looking to do? And then I would use a lot of what we call motivational interviewing to kind of help you get to that motivation and figure that out, which is reflecting back. We'd figure out what the what the limiting thoughts are. What are the thoughts that you have that, that are stopping you? Uh, what are, you know, what are those, I call them, you know, what we call them in, in, in therapy, cognitive distortions. What are the cognitive distortions going on inside your head that are stopping you from getting to that next space? What's the negative self-talk you're putting out there? Right. And how do we work around that? Right. Um, so extreme life, like I said, is a concept. It's a work in progress right now. Um, what are some projects that you're, I know you have the pod, tell us more about what the podcast, I know you do interviews, yeah. Who? what type of people do you interview on your podcast? I interview everyone, uh, <laughs> basically everyone. Now, I, I'm only about 10 episodes in, yep. um, and it's kind of interesting. I looked on the map the other day, and, and we, we go through liberated syndication, um, and you know it gives you all these statistics and stuff, and there's actually people downloading my, my podcast in Spain, wow. and I'm like... Wow, that's pretty cool. And 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 Australia, and there was a couple people in Lithuania. Like two two downloads happened in Lithuania. All right. I'm like, okay. I'm not sure how they're hearing about it or what they're doing. You know, whatever. Maybe it's Facebook or whatever. But uh, you know, Extreme Life is, is you know, it's it's the podcast itself is about uh, basically showing people that change is possible, uh-huh. showing people what life could be. Um, it's kind of showing the extreme side, but also just you know what makes people change. Um, I've had all kinds of people on. I had Charlie Mills just the other day, who was the the, the drummer for Skid Row. Okay. I uh, had him on, uh, you know, episode 10, mm-hmm. uh, if you want to check that out. But um, I had Charlie on. We talked a lot about his, you know, journey, what he's doing now. He's doing a lot of coaching yeah. uh, now and helping people um, get sober. Yeah. Um, the week before that, I had uh, four elite uh, OCR athletes on. We talked about their journeys. And obstacle course. Yeah, obstacle course yeah. race athletes. Mm-hmm. Um you know, and talked about how they changed and, and what caused them to, you know, 
you know, and and we talked about stories from races because there's a ton, sure. like a giant tire rolling down the hill while we were running <laughs> through the race, almost killing people. Yep. And, you know, there's stuff that went on during those races that are, especially the early ones when they were less restricted. Yeah. You know, the early ones, there was some wacky stuff, logs flying down the hills off the mountain and just weird stuff going on. But, uh, you know, a lot of cool stories. So that was, you know, I've had them, uh, that on. I've had shark divers on. Right. You know, because, you know, you know, that's one of my favorite things in the world is to go down and feed sharks. Yeah. Uh, some people think I'm nuts. My my uh, employer says to me he's going to get key man insurance on me one of these <laughs> days because, yeah. you know, he's a little worried that that's one right. of these days that I'm not going to come back. But uh, Shark bait, huh? Yeah, well, that's, that's uh, actually, it's funny because someone called me that in an airport once. You know, a friend of mine. <laughs> A friend of mine who I, they were traveling somewhere else and we just happened to be in the same airport and I hear shark bait. Hey, shark bait. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, it's kind of funny, but you know, I dive all over the world with sharks. I mean, I dive at a place called tiger beach with, you know, tiger sharks. Um, I, I dive, uh, you know, we feed them. We literally go down with a crate and hand feed them. Right. Um, and, uh, bull sharks in Florida. I go down there. I do the bull sharks. I hand feed them. Um, we do um we go to uh guadalupe for white sharks right a lot of fun out there big the big girls they're huge right. some of them are like 20 some you know 20 feet um you know hammerheads and bimini uh hammerheads at tiger beach i mean we've been all over the world diving with sharks and you know they're they're very misunderstood you know and part of the reason why we do what we do is to show people that uh that sharks aren't trolling around the ocean looking for people to eat. Right. If that was the case, I'd be dead. Right. Many. I've been doing it more than a decade. Yeah. Uh, I'd be dead several times over. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, they, they're not, they don't want to eat me. Matter of fact, all they want from us is the food that we're giving them. That's gotcha. it. Um, and, you know, uh, and, and I've never been bit yet. Right. Uh, so, you know, knock on, I don't Whatever. see any wood around yeah. here, but well, uh, knock on my head. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but uh, yeah, it, it's, it's one of those things that I think is part of life. I mean, you, you only you only live once, and you got to enjoy it. You got to go out there and and do things that you want to do. Yeah. Um, I mean, when we dive with sharks, don't get me wrong, we're not just jumping in the water sure, and saying, yeah, "Hey, yeah. we're just going to throw caution to the wind." Right. We, we do things yeah, in a you way. You know what you're doing. We have been yeah sufficiently trained. We got yes. people around us that are very even trained more than us. Yeah. That keep us safe. Uh, you know, and and. Uh, you know, I still uh, just to just to put this out there. I got four spots still available <laughs> on uh, on my trip in uh, January for Tiger Beach to yeah. live aboard. Wonderful trip. You yeah. know, you want information? You know, DM me yeah. or whatever. But uh, yeah, it's a it's a cool trip. All Sweet. food and drinks are supplied, and um, and we dive four times a day with sharks. That's cool. All day long. Um, so. Where I, you just mentioned it, but I mean, tell us based on all the stuff you're doing now, where the audience could find you. Where where do they want you to follow? Um, well, you can find me at extremelife.com. It's X. Uh, yeah, X. Spell that out for X T R E M E L Y F E. We'll put it in the show notes. So, so um, I could also send over a link or Perfect. whatever if you want that to attach. Uh, you know, uh, you could also find me on anywhere anywhere you get your podcasts. Yep. Uh, Spotify, everywhere. Um, iTunes, the whole iTunes, thing. Apple, whatever to you sure. Know, every whatever your uh, I, uh, podcast uh, format is. Uh, if you put in extreme life, yes. come, all the all the podcasts will come up. Uh, so you know you can find me at, at those places. You can find me on Facebook. Yeah. Um, you can find me either at Steve D. Uh, on Facebook. D E E. D E E. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, on Instagram as well. Cool. Um, or you could just put in extreme life, and that'll bring you bring you to the extreme life pages cool. as well. So. All right. I'm gonna put you on the spot. Last question. <laughs> I love the spot. Go ahead. If you had 60 seconds to share any message with the world, what would it be? 
<laughs> 60 seconds to share any message with the world. Um, live your life to the best of your ability. Don't let anybody tell you that you can't do things. Um, you know, don't let anybody, don't you stay out of that negative talk in your head. That stuff that keeps you back, holds you back. Yeah. Um, it, talk to somebody. It's always good to talk to somebody about stuff. Don't keep it all bottled up because if you do, it'll, it'll basically eventually explode like a soda bottle if it's fizzed up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and just keep going in a positive direction. If you're not moving forward, you're moving backward. Just remember that there is no standing still. There is no neutral. You don't have a neutral. You're either moving forward or you're moving backwards. Perfect. Steve. This is awesome. Selfishly, I was super excited for you to come in. I didn't. I knew parts of your story, but I didn't know the story, and so it was very, very. Oh, there's insightful. more. <laughs> yeah, well, there's a ra- lot more. Round two. Round, round two. two. But yeah. Steve, we appreciate you yeah. being on. Yeah, no All worries, right? man. Thank you so much. I appreciate being here. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Stay Healthy New Jersey podcast, brought to you by Strive to Move. If your pain or injury is preventing you from living the healthy and active lifestyle you love and deserve, and want to get back to doing what you love pain-free, we offer both a free ebook and free over-the-phone consultation to help you figure out the root cause of your pain and the best next steps to help resolve it. Find our ebooks online at strivetomove.com slash our services. There you'll find an ebook for topics on such things as back pain, knee pain, sports injuries, and CrossFit injuries. These eBooks will provide you with free expert advice, tips, and exercises to help solve your pain from the comfort of your own home. Just visit strivetomove.com slash our services to download your eBook and have it delivered directly to your inbox. We also offer free, no obligation phone consults with a doctor on staff to New Jersey residents. Just call us at 908-547-0729 or visit us at strivetomove.com and click the Talk to the Doctor First button on the homepage to schedule a call with us. Thanks again for joining us, and we will see you next time on the Stay Healthy New Jersey podcast.